Well, hello, family. You ready for the good news? Good. Open your Bibles then to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, of course, we're continuing our series called The Jesus Way of Human Flourishing, and we've been looking at the Beatitudes to start with, which are invitations into the good life uh, with Jesus. And the first three Beatitudes were about walking in humility. The second three were about justice. And these last three are about being people of peace. And so uh, we're going to start reading in verse 1, but I'm going to preach and focus on verses 9 through 12. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. I listen to a radio program some mornings when I'm bathing, and the preacher always ends with, and think about that. So I'm going to read this a little differently today. I'm going to pause with each verse so you think about that. When Jesus gave this, he wasn't sitting with his disciples just kind of teaching off the cuff. He was in front of a great multitude of people. And I think of him delivering this as though he was a town crier in a medieval village walking through the town trying to let everybody hear the good news. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good father. We do thank you so much for your word, for your word that uh, you speak to all who has ears to hear. Lord, we thank you. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, we need you to make us whole through your word. 
So would you do your work now? In your holy name we ask. Amen. What do you hope that you're known for by the time you die? Like, what is the one thing you hope people will remember about the kind of person uh, you were in life? Now, Henry Ford, of course, he had the reputation uh, for building the first mass-produced car. He famously said, you can have a you can have a Ford in any color as long as it's black. John Wayne, uh, we know, had the reputation of never crying. Shirley Temple had the reputation of being the youngest actor in Hollywood. Your reputation is what you are known for in the eyes of others. Okay, It is all of you in a breath attached to your name. And so as such, having the right reputation, it's pretty important. It matters. Whether we know it or not, we spend a lot of time and energy uh, trying to make a good name for ourselves and distancing ourselves uh, away from the wrong name or wrong reputation. Jesus knows this about you and I, and what we're going to see in the text today is that Jesus is inviting us <coughs> to accept a particular reputation for ourselves. He wants every single one of us in this room to adopt a particular reputation for ourselves. And, and, and here's his invitation. It's come, accept the reputation of being suffering peacemakers, and you will flourish. Come, accept the reputation of being suffering peacemakers and you will flourish. And so there's, there's three pieces to this reputation that uh, I just kind of want to walk through today. The first piece is that those that work towards peace with their enemies are flourishing. You can see that here in verse 9. Jesus says, flourishing are the peacemakers for this reason. They shall be called sons of God. <clears throat> so Jesus gives us a double-sided reputation here in this single verse. The first side of this reputation is about uh, the reputation that we're going to have with other people. The reputation we're going to have with people in society or in our families or our network of friends. Jesus' followers are to be known as peacemakers among people. And the first thing that, the first thing that people should think when they hear the word uh, or the, they hear the, like the Christians are in town is that they should think that those are the folks that are going to make peace where there's conflict. That's the thought that should jump into their mind. Until very recently, this virtue has been so embedded in American culture that we can barely recognize how uniquely Christian it is to live as a peacemaker. I mean, when you survey the history of human civilization, making war was normal. Normal. 
I mean, making war is what kept everything stable. It kept everything protected. It kept everything status quo. Right? It was peace through strength. You ever heard that phrase? Peace through strength? Everybody tried to conquer or have dominion over their neighbor. At best, you might enter, enter into a fragile treaty with the next tribe over or the next nation over because through some like marriage. Like, it was like mutually beneficial to both tribes or something. But that was more like, a, you know, I promise not to wipe you out if you promise not to wipe me out. Deal? That's what that was. See, the reputation that you wanted was to be the most resourced tribe or to be the most vicious nation or to have the most powerful god or nuclear bomb to bring into the 21st century. And no one will mess with you. That's the kind of reputation that gave you the good life, the safe and secure life, kept you safe from attacks and it garnered respects from all the other people around you. And Jesus here invites you and I to forsake that reputation. For the reputation of being known as a people who work towards peace with their enemies. Jesus is going to flesh out the specifics of this uh, later on in Matthew, but here he simply just lays out this general principle, and then he gives his rationale or his reason behind it. Being a peacemaker means most fundamentally that we do not look for ways to burn down our enemy. That's really all it means. It's not... That's not how we're orientated toward those that offend us, abuse us, mistreat us. So when it comes to conflict, the Jesus way of living is to ask, how can there be a bridge built over this conflict between these two people or these two parties? What work needs to be done so that war doesn't break out on, on everybody and there's collateral damage everywhere? We look at our opponent who is fighting us or resisting us, and we ask, what happened to them? What happened to them that made them like that? How could I help restore the humanity of that someone, uh, maybe even I, has stolen from them? How could I restore the humanity? Christians are not to have the reputation for being warmongers, threateners, instigators, or the escalators of conflict. We should have the reputation, according to Jesus, for wanting to do the long, difficult work toward bringing peace so far as it depends on us. Jesus says peacemakers are flourishing. These people are winning at life. And then here's his reason. Because those people will be called sons of God. That's the other side of this reputation. 
There's a reputation that we're going to have from people. But then there's this other side. Will we have the reputation of being sons and daughters of God? What makes you and I willing to make peace with our opponents so far as it depends on us? Because that's not always possible, right? But what makes us willing to want to try to do that work of making peace instead of being quick to burn them down, cut them off, cancel them? It's the gospel. It's because that is exactly what we, get this, have personally experienced God doing for us in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, the apostle Paul says, and you, not someone out there somewhere, <laughs> and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, in, our, in response to our great of offense of ignoring and rejecting the one who created us, God did not burn us down. God did not cut us off and shut the way to life. God did not. He chose to not make war with us. God did the long, difficult, and incredibly painful work of making peace by the blood of Christ on the cross. He forgave our offense by absorbing our offense at great personal cost to himself. And that is the pattern of making peace. There's not another way. He shows us the way. When you have been touched, personally touched, by the grace of this God, when you know that he could have rightly burned you down, that experience makes you want to be peacemakers to those that offend you. It changes you. It really does. Jesus says, when this is how you generally show up in life, show up in a conflict as peacemakers instead of escalators, you will be called sons of God. They may call you weak, and he will call you a son of God. They may call you dumb. He will call you son of God, a son and daughter of God. My question is by whom? Who will call me a son of God? God. Ain't God's word over you the one that matters eternally? What reputation are you running after? See, regardless of what other people call you in this life, there's some good news right here. God will call you what he calls his own son, Jesus. 
because you are acting like him. You are, get this, you're literally participating in the same work of making peace with others that Jesus is presently doing in the world right now. You're saying, I want to participate in that. The second piece of this reputation is that those who are mistreated because of Jesus, that's the caveat, those who are mistreated because of Jesus are flourishing people. They're living the good, happy, satisfying life. It's here in the text, it's in verse 10 and 11. Jesus says, flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not persecuted in general, persecuted for righteousness sake. For this reason, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's like the exact same thing he said at the very first beatitude, right? This is like a bookend. Did you, did you catch that? Verse 11, flourishing are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account. So if the Jesus way of human flourishing hasn't been controversial enough, Christ finishes with the most crazy sounding redefinition of happiness of all time right here. I mean, you read this, you go, come again, Jesus. Don't just read through these things and let it just kind of like blow by your ears or something. This is a different way to live. He says that those that are persecuted, those that are reviled, are experiencing the good life? You're experiencing the fully satisfying life? Like, what? How do you make sense of that? Two words that I want to focus on here are persecute and reviled. Persecute relates more to deeds of mistreatment by others. Revile relates more to words of misrepresentation by others. So you have deeds and words, right? Well, now, we use the word persecute or persecution pretty freely today, don't we? Do you know what that word actually means in the original Greek language? The word is dioko, and it means literally to pursue, persecute, pursue. Pursue someone, get this, to drive them out as if being hunted. So that's what, that is what persecution means. To truly be persecuted means that you have a sense that someone is constantly, intentionally coming to get you. They are hunting you down in an effort to expel you from the land. Okay? That's what the word means. Jesus says that if you are being persecuted, that's by that definition, if you're being persecuted and hunted down, if people are saying that you are a worker of evil in society for following his way, you're flourishing. You're flourishing. 
Now, Jesus knows that we like to claim that we're being persecuted anytime something bad happens to us, all right? Our kids say they're being persecuted by their parents all the time, right? You're persecuting me. And we're no different. And so you know what? Jesus puts multiple qualifiers in these little verses here. Did you see them? Did you catch it? He says, for righteousness' sake, not for any old sake, for righteousness' sake, right? And we talked weeks before how Matthew defines righteousness. Persecution that is blessed by God comes because we are living wholeheartedly for Jesus' sake, Jesus' reputation, Jesus' glory, not our glory, not to save face for our name. Okay, that's a qualifier. If Christians are being obnoxious, divisive, if they are making threats as a group, and as a result, people want you out of, your, out of their schools and out of their businesses and out of their branches of government and out of their neighborhoods, they want you out of there, then that's punishment. That's not persecution. Also, if people are saying that you're a worker of evil and it's not a false charge, it's a true charge, then you don't get a commendation from God about that. And the Apostle Peter talks very detailed about that. So we need to be careful when we use the name of the Lord, right? Jesus says so. He's defining it for us. When people charge me and you with doing acts of evil because we're not participating in the world's way of life, then we should be able to say, where have I destroyed life? That should be our response. You show me where I have destroyed life. You show me where I've destabilized society. Show me where I have acted out of step with the creator who creates life. Show me. And then I'll consider that charge. See, this is exactly, by the way, this is exactly the way of Jesus. Jesus did this when he was charged by the Pharisees for doing evil on the Sabbath, for healing on the Sabbath, remember? Let's go there. Mark 3, 4. And Jesus said to them, okay, is it lawful on the Sabbath? They're charging him with breaking the law, right? Doing wrong, doing evil. And so he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill it? But they were silent. The Pharisees claimed that he was doing evil. Why? By healing a man on the Sabbath day. Now think about how ridiculous that is. Okay? But Jesus did respond. Calmly responds. And his response was to ask, is it better to destroy life or to save life on the Sabbath? There's no way for them to look at his obvious restoration beneficial healing act that he did to this man's life and charged Jesus with being a worker of evil. At, at a different time, Jesus says, for which of my good deeds are you charging me for? Right? Remember that? Here's the point. Please listen. Please listen. Jesus was against 
his enemies in such a way that it was for their flourishing too. He didn't burn him down right there, did he? He's trying to change their mind. He's trying to change their mind because they're wrong. Listen, Jesus resisted even his enemies in such a way that they would benefit from his resistance. Let that scramble your categories a little bit. It's supposed to. The way matters as much as the what. The world says it's either us or them. And the Jesus way says, well, you can be a part of us. And I hope you will. That's the life he's inviting you and I into to live. Christians we will not participate in certain things that the world participates in. That's true. We just won't. We just say, I'm not playing. And you know what? That's going to have an effect. That'll make people uncomfortable. It'll raise their suspicions about us being bad for society because we're not participating in certain things. It might even cause them to reject us. It might even cause us to lose our place in the family or lose some friends because I don't know where we stand. Are we really good or not good? But we need to, we're not really working to be disruptive. And it's not because we're actually against them. We're living a certain way because we actually love Jesus and we love our neighbor and we want good for them too. And that's not good for you. It's not, that's not good for me and my tribe. It's not good for anyone is what we're saying. Does that make sense? So when we suffer, Jesus is saying, when we suffer for these specific reasons, Jesus says, you are experiencing the kingdom of God. You are not losing out. You are winning in life. You are flourishing. Jesus completely redefines what it means to flourish as a human being. To truly flourish means to suffer as we await his coming kingdom, which is what he's going to teach us to pray in the next chapter, right? And so at the very end of all this, he gives his reason for his redefinition, and it's this. Rejoice and be glad because these sufferings are signs. Rejoice and be glad because these sufferings are signs. It's here in verse 12. It says, rejoice and be glad for this reason. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Brothers and sisters, the Jesus way of living the good life is so radically upside down to how our society envisions the good life. I mean, he actually commends things that we burn lots of energy trying to avoid. Like poverty of spirit. No, I'm middle class in spirit. 
I got this. Or being merciful. Or hungering and thirsting. Or grieving. I mean, we're constantly told, you and I are constantly told, and we even believe that the good life is the life without any suffering in it. The pain-free life is the goal of our life. I mean, I believe that. If I'm being honest, I burn a ton of energy saying, how can I get this pain out of my life? But see, there's different kinds of pains, and there's different kinds of suffering that we experience in life, amen? There's different species, if I could put it that way. Some pain actually warns us that there is a problem. Some pain is kind of like the lights on your dashboard, like, okay, pull over, check engine light, right? And we can either ignore the lights going off on our dashboard and get it fixed, or we can just keep driving along. So that pain is telling us there's a problem. Well, there's other kinds of pain that actually promote growth in our muscles, and because of that pain, our muscle responds and it becomes actually more, uh, becomes stronger and becomes more resilient and we can do more things because of that pain is present. There's still other kinds of pain that literally, guys, rewire our brains so that our mental and emotional capacities are enlarged. I've been re- re- reading some of these words from neuroscientists and they talk about there's this sheath of protein over our, uh, over our, uh, what do they call them, neurons or something. And the, the more you experience certain kinds of pains and you, and you work that part of your brain, it, that protein gets thicker and thicker and they get longer and longer and make better connections. Your brain can change. But it has to have that stimuli. We're able to do more and we're able to do things longer because why? The pain has literally ad- resulted in the adjustment of our thinking, adjustment of our mind. Listen, when we suffer in these specific ways that Jesus has outlined on the mountain, Jesus says that we're flourishing. It will go well for you. And here's his reason why. These kinds, not any suffering, but these kinds of sufferings are tangible signs that the kingdom of God has really come into your life. So be of good cheer. You people of faith. See, when we, when this happens, he's saying that the kingdom has come. Why? You have signs. You really are behaving differently than society. You really are different from your old self five years ago. You really have been changed by God. Rejoice! Rejoice! You are being transformed. And here's your tangible evidence. Here's your signs. You wouldn't suffer in this way if you were still the old man. You just kind of go along with whatever. Does that make sense? There's t- these signs of suffering means two wonderful things for us. The first is this. Jesus says you actually do have a great reward in heaven. That's yours. For all the loss that you're feeling right now, Jesus makes this promise, you have a reward, and it's a great reward. It's huge, it's massive. It is a beautiful inheritance that cannot be thrown out on a legal technicality. 
It is a glorious inheritance that is not subject to the corrosive effect of time and inflation and depreciation like all the other kinds of inheritances that the world holds out and offers to you. That's why this is a great reward. It's durable, guys. It doesn't drop in value. Isn't that great? The Apostle Peter says it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, to an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Didn't that sound exactly what Jesus is teaching? You must have learned that from Jesus, huh? So what? So rejoice. So be glad. In Luke's version, it says, dance. When you're getting truly persecuted and truly reviled because you're following the Jesus way. Get excited. This kind of suffering is a sign that your inheritance is yours, it's real, and it's on the way. Second thing this means, it's wonderful, is that if you're being persecuted for following Jesus, if you are out for your enemy's benefit, and I still call you evil, right? If you are driven out and you are hunted down and called all sorts of names because you follow Jesus from your heart, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because you are in good company, Jesus says. You're in great company. You're not in bad company. Good company. You're getting in good trouble. You're getting in good trouble. You stand in a long line of women and men that were approved by God, accepted by God, loved by God, including Jesus himself. Hebrews 11, the writer says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they've been thinking about the land from which they've gone out, they would have had opportunity to go back. They would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, but as it is, they desire a better country. A better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, for this reason, <laughs> God is not ashamed to be called their God for he is prepared for them a city. Abraham, 
Sarah, Moses, Deborah, Gideon, David, Samuel, Ruth, Esther, Jesus. All these women and men rejected by the world because of their faith in God. They're living His way. All because they desired a better country than the one that they were currently living in. A better homeland. A better superior inheritance. A better superior reputation than the world could bestow upon them. What an honor for you and I to be named among those women and men, huh? Here's what Jesus is telling us today. Jesus is saying, look, when you're suffering, I want you to know something. You're not suffering alone. You're not suffering alone. This is not a throwaway part of the end of this verse, guys. He's saying you're not suffering alone. You're not the first one to suffer in this way, and you're not going to be the last one, and you're not even alone while you're suffering. You're suffering with me and with my family that actively surrounds you, that cloud of witnesses. They're with you. Rejoice and be glad while you suffer in this way, the Jesus way. Why? Because you will experience my real presence. You'll experience my real presence in it. You'll experience the fraternity of faith and the sorority of faith. That's what he's saying. You will experience the acceptance of God himself in real time. Anew, each and every time. That's his promise. Jesus is saying, brothers and sisters, listen, you will not merely get through and survive this suffering. You will flourish. Fruit will come out of you. Right in the midst of this. Why? Because I will bring all my resources to bear on your situation. So rejoice and be glad. Family, let's ask Jesus to help us live as peacemakers in our homes, in our schools, in our jobs, and in our neighborhood. Amen? I love you. Jesus loves you too. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, great peacemaker, we thank you for your love and for doing the very long, difficult, and painful work of making peace between us and God. Pray, Lord, that these words would touch our heart and change how we think and change what we love and treasure Oh, Lord, I pray that you would do a good, deep work. In Jesus' name, amen.